I'm going to do some well below average public speaking this morning. Okay. They, they say for your um, intro, your hook, that you should try to do something that would get everybody's attention. But I'm going to probably narrow this one down to maybe, I'm going to guess two people. I'm going to say a name, and if you, if you know this name, if you know who this person is, I want you to raise your hand, okay? Dale Blaney. Right, there's the two. That's the ones I thought. <laughs> Dale Blaney played basketball for the West Virginia University Mountaineers back in the day when I was young. Uh, how about Herbie Brooks? Still same time. Same two, okay. Herbie Brooks also actually grew up in Mullins and went on to play for WVU in basketball as well. I mention them because <clears throat> me personally, they were the best two pure shooters that I ever saw with my own eyes in my life. They just, I mean, they had, I guess what you could call a prototypical shot. In basketball. Now, there's a right way to shoot a basketball, if you don't know this, okay? Okay, you're supposed to have the ball here. You're basically holding it with one hand. This is just for support so it don't fall off the side. You release, you jump, rotation, splash is how it should go. Release, rotation, splash. Well, I'm no shooter, okay? I was about this big in like seventh grade, so I always had a hard time getting the ball up to the basket. So I shot with two hands from my chest. Well, do, do the trigonometry or whatever here. That don't work, okay? Use the backboard a lot, but you're supposed to have this arc in your shot, and there's supposed to be a rotation to the ball that helps pull it down through the hoop. Well, that doesn't do that. So mine was not the prototypical shot. But I remember watching Dale Blaney. I remember actually went to a basketball camp where Herbie Brooks was teaching down in Mullins for... Don Knuckles' Camp of Champions, blue shirt, gray letters. It's true. Yeah. And they didn't fix my shot, okay? I still can't shoot. Now I shoot up here. Instead of from my chest, I shoot from up here, okay? So if we're ever playing pickup basketball and you notice that the preacher can't shoot, I've known this for years, okay? This is not news to me. Why do I bring that up? <clears throat> Just to embarrass myself, actually, no. I bring that up because I said a word, prototypical, prototype, okay? It's, it's the model. It's, it's the, the pattern for all others that go after it, okay? Dale Blaney, Herbie Brooks had what I would call a prototypical shot. They shot right and they shot well, especially from outside, <clears throat> This morning, what we're going to look at is the prototypical prayer. But be careful, okay? I'm, I'm, I've been challenged in my study of this passage that is so familiar to us, I'm afraid we kind of go, oh, it's that. I would ask you this morning, and this is hard, okay? And I'm asking for the Spirit's help in doing this. I want to ask you if you can... Hear this as if for the first time. 
There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not going to come and drop truth bombs that are going to blow your mind. But I'm going to ask you that, that you would, that would approach this text this morning with the help of God to try to listen to it like you've never listened to it. Like, I know you can't do it like you've never heard it before, but imagine being on that hillside with Jesus and Jesus saying, pray then like this. God in the flesh saying this is how you should pray. Okay? So, if you would, stand with us. We're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. I'm really glad Don chose to read that whole section this morning, what was prior to this and this, because we need to hear this. We need to see this. So, we stand to respect the God of the Word and the Word of God that we're about to read And listen to. Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For... If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Our Father, we come and recognize the holiness of the one who spoke these words, of the Spirit who helps teach us these words, And of you, Father, who these words reference. Help us, please, by your Spirit's power to hear, to learn, to change, and to be doers of this word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Prototypical. So we'll start with verse 9, and then we'll get a little background. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, missed last week, whatever had me, had me down on the couch. And it's a woe-begone existence to just lay around, isn't it? Wasn't the worst, but it definitely wasn't the best. I would have rather been here. But two weeks ago, we saw in that message that the typical way that the hypocrites prayed was out in the open. And their desire was to be seen by men. Well, Jesus had instructed His disciples to not be like them, to not do like them, but rather to go into their rooms, close the door, and pray to their Father who sees in secret. And then He said, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So keep that in mind. This is the prayer that Jesus is talking about, the type of prayer that Jesus is talking about. Alone... In your room to your Father who is in secret. Okay? So now we transition into His direct instructions on how to pray when you're alone in your room with the door closed. Okay? Hence His words, pray then like this, that we see at the beginning of verse 9. Now, as we, as we begin to look into the prayer specifics, I want to make some general observations about this passage before we get into the specifics, okay? 
because this is actually more of a prayer style. Okay? One of the first things we need to see and know is that Jesus is not teaching them a prayer. All right? This is not a prayer that they are to recite like robots, parroting words like they're magic or lucky or something. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, Jesus had just said, Don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles who think that they will be heard for their many words. No vain repetitions. So what follows in verses 9 through 15 are surely not, it's surely not a prayer to pray just to pray it. Does that mean that it's of no worth to memorize or to say it out loud or to actually pray it? No, but that is not the intent of Jesus' teaching in this section. He is not teaching them a prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. And there's a world of difference. (coughs) Excuse me. What we're going to see actually is that this is a skeleton that we can base all of our praying upon. It's an outline of the essentials of what prayer is all about. It's a prototype. Okay? And what we're going to see in this outline is there's two main sections of this prayer. The first one is focused on God, His name, His kingdom, and His will. And the second is focused on the needs of man, bread, forgiveness, and temptation. So we just let it outline itself. I'll give you that outline at the end back actually in our application. So there's two sections, one toward God and one toward man. Now one other general note on the prayer this, this caught me by surprise, and, and I, I don't know why I've never seen it, heard it, I don't know. But there is not one singular pronoun in the prayer on behalf of the prayer. There is no I. There is no me. There is, of course, you, your, which is singular and referring to God as the receiver of the prayer. But the prayer is structured with a collective mindset. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But where are we praying this prayer? Alone, in our room, with the door closed. Listen to me. Private prayer is corporate prayer. That changed my life over these last two weeks. Because let me tell you what, I got a laundry list for God. I, me, I need this, I want this. Bless me, encourage me, keep me safe, give me strength, give me. And you're not going to see any of that in this prayer. Us, we, our, you. And I think if you don't hear anything else today, that that should change your prayer life when you're alone in your room with the door closed. The main thrust of our prayers is not to be I or me. It is us, we, and our. So there's plenty to get through here. I think John MacArthur preached 12 messages on this passage. We're going to try to do it in one, okay? Less than an hour now, so let's get busy on the specifics. Um, Jesus begins his instruction on how to pray with what is most important. And what is that? 
He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When praying, it is imperative to remember and recognize whom it is that we are approaching. We sang this morning, down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. Why? Because He is the greatest of all beings. He is the God who created all that there is by speaking it into existence. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And we are taught in this skeletal outline of prayer to approach this God as our Father. Yes, I come before the God of the universe. Yes, I come before the only omnipotent being in the universe. Yes, I come before the one who knows me inside and out, my sins, my secret thoughts, my doubts, my fears, my shame. Yes, and I am called to call him Father. But not just my Father, our Father. Bunch of jokers, your Father too. And I am to come to him with us in my heart and my mind, calling out to our Father. It's amazing. It is truly, powerfully jaw-dropping. We had said that the Old Testament does not refer to God as Father much, but it's not non-existent. They do. But Jesus is saying to appeal to the great God as Father, a title of intimacy and honor. Call God Father. Or we said two weeks ago even Abba, which was Daddy. Approach Him as your father, as your daddy. As we've already talked about in the last message, we won't spend much time here, but it has to be noted that this is priority. This is first. This is how we approach Him. We approach Him as our Father. We cry out to our Father. Not your earthly Father, but our Father in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. Heaven is the place of God, where God's people are longing to be, where Jesus ascended to after He died and was resurrected. Heaven is above and outside the earth where we dwell now. Heaven is known and viewed as the place where God is enthroned. It implies that we're approaching our Father who controls and reigns over all things. The sovereign Father. Our Father is our King. And our King is our Father. And we establish that at the very front end of our praying. And when we establish it, we ask for the next thing quickly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is a word that means to be sanctified or set apart. It means to separate from profane things. To acknowledge as venerable. And what is it that's to be separate and venerated here? The name of God. Now that's not referring to a name as made up by letters. It's not referring to Yahweh or Adonai or El Shaddai. 
nor any other Appalachian, 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 no other title that God uses. Rather here, the name of God is an expression of the nature and character of God. It's about who He is. Hallowed be who you are, God. And who He is, what He is, is to be hallowed, venerated, separated from the morass of the world. We approach our Father and we recognize that He is other. He's not like us. He's altogether different. He's altogether better. He's altogether greater than we are. That we might know Him as the awesome God that He is. He is, His name is Hallowed. This is primary. This is first. This is most important. Calling out to our Father as the one who is other. Who is to be Hallowed, venerated, respected, separated from the rest of the world. That's first. Okay, then what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we approached our Father in heaven and we recognized His name is to be hallowed. And now we ask God to do what is most important to Him. We ask Him this, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see God as our Father and we ask that His kingdom would come. Now what's God's kingdom? Alistair Begg defines God's kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And that's good, but we've got to be careful here. Because if not, we're making God's kingdom about us. And it's not. We're part of it, we're blessed by it, but that's not the point. The point is that God is known as the supreme ruler of all things, all people, all of the universe. And one day, it will be seen in actual experience. But right now, we don't see that, do we? We are in the already but not yet period right now. The kingdom has come and the kingdom will come. God is king, but we don't see all things subjected to Him right now. God is sovereign, we sang this morning, but there are other powers operating against Him at this time. That doesn't mean that He's not sovereign. It just means that He hasn't removed all the stumbling blocks from His kingdom yet. God is king and is commanding obedience from all, even now, but the end of things has not yet been realized. Paul talks about the end of things in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which I don't have up here says this, When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now we don't see that yet, but we want to, right? As God's children, as servants of the King of the universe, we want to see God be all in all. And we want that kingdom to come. And... We want God's will to be done. Since God is king, we want what He decrees to be done. We want His will to be done. We want His kingdom to come. And this will be done, not just in the future, at the end of all things, but it can be done here, on earth, as it is in heaven. So that's why we 
pray that. That's why we ask that. We ask that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly, completely, instantly, willingly, lovingly. So here at the end of the brief first period of the prayer, we ask for this kingdom and this will to be done here and now on earth like it is done in heaven. That's what we want, right? That's what we should want. Along with God's name being hallowed, we desire for this God that we know as Father to be loved, treasured, and obeyed here on earth. Now, in us, through us, for Him and for His glory. God's name hallowed, God's kingdom come, and God's will done here on the earth as it is in heaven. This is how we pray about and to our Father in this first part of Jesus' outline for our prayers. And now we move to the second section where we address our needs. And there's something biblical about this that's powerful. What's our first need? Give us this day our daily bread. Say it with me, bread. Yeah, right? We'll get to that in a second. Having spent the first section on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus then has His disciples turn their attention to their needs. And the first thing that He has them pray for is bread. Give us this day our daily bread. So what are the implications here? Well, the first word itself is very indicative. It's give. If you can remember back when we were working through the Beatitudes, the very first one was what? you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word poor was tokos, P-T-O-C-H-O-S, and it inferred poverty like that of a crouching beggar. It's a kind of poor that's saying, if you don't give me something, I have nothing. Now, here in the our needs section, our first word, give, implies the same thing. Give calls us to have. And again, note the plural us after this. And then give us this day. Now actually, that's pretty cut and dry, right? Give us this day. Actually, it's not. It's a little bit confusing when you study this out on this this day thing, okay? Excuse me, let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Uh, It's not a big deal, but this day our daily bread can actually be taken a couple of ways. It can be seen as give us today the bread we need, or it can be seen as the bread of tomorrow, the day-by-day bread. Okay? Again, it's not a big deal, as it pretty much means the same thing just from a different time perspective. If you're praying first thing in the morning, you're praying for your bread this day. If you're praying at the end of the day, you would be asking for the bread of tomorrow. Either way, the focus is that what is being asked for is enough for immediate need. Give us this day or give us tomorrow enough for that day. And what are they to ask for? Bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, what is bread? Well, again, it's simple, but maybe not as simple as we might could make it. Of course, bread is that delightful, wonderful, tasty, lovely, 
amazing mixture of flour, oil, water, salt, honey, or other ingredients that is having a war waged against it in our present day of low-carb keto diets. Doomed we are if our culture calls stuff made from cauliflower bread. Sorry. Got off on a tangent there. Need a drink of water. But I think we all know what bread is. But Jesus... Is he commanding his disciples to ask God to give them bread every day? And the answer is yes and no. Bread is food, and food can be called bread. We even call money bread sometimes, right? So food is implied here, but it goes deeper than that. Bread actually here is a word that infers the basics of physical survival and subsistence. You're like, well, how do you get that? <clears throat> Culturally... Bread was everything I need. And again, yes. Amen. amen. So, now there's other things in there. But, but they would refer to their daily bread as everything that they needed to survive. It's all we need to physically conduct our lives. Air, water, food, shelter, clothing and such. The basic necessities of physical life. Give us this day our needs. Our very sustaining matter. Give us today all that we need to exist physically. Now come back to that thought of Tokos, the crouching beggar. And when you think about that, this is asking God to meet your physical needs and give you all you need to be alive physically. And I think we can miss this if we just see this as bread, as a loaf of bread, as lovely as bread is. I'll stop, okay? If we think that this is Jesus just telling us to give us food, we can miss the immensity of it. We live in a society that does not generally need food for each day. What I mean by that is we don't wake up with nothing, generally. How long would it take you and your family or you by yourself to eat all the food that's in your house? A day? A week? A month? Six months? I mean, eat all the food out of your house till there's no food left. Some of y'all are like, I got a bunch of kids. I don't know. Here's what I'm asking. If we just see this as asking God to give us the food that we need for today, we're not really asking God for much because we got more than we need. Now, in his day and time, in their culture, there were subsistence people who woke up not knowing if they were going to eat or not that day. And that happens in our culture, but I'd say not nearly as much as it did theirs. So why would Jesus say, give us this day our daily bread? Because we're literally asking God to keep us alive physically. You think you just keep yourself alive physically? Well, you're like, well, I work out, you know, and I try to eat good and... I eat bread made from cauliflower. I said I'd stop, didn't I? Sorry. It's wider and deeper than just food. This is literally asking God to keep you alive physically. We can exercise. We can eat the right food. We can work to pay for our house and our stuff. But ultimately, listen to me. Even physically, we are crouching beggars. 
If God does not give us life and all that we need for it, we have nothing. Oh, I was about to cross the line. Remember when Obama said that about that business that you didn't build? Boy, people got mad. And I I was mad too. I think he was wrong. But here, you think you bought that house you live in? You think you bought those clothes that are on your back? Well, you did. Where'd the money come from? My job that I work. Oh, yeah? Who gave you that job? My boss did. Oh, really? Listen to me. God is the cause of all things. Your physical life, your subsistence, your bread, your food, your clothes, your shelter, they come from God or you do not have them. And we forget that because we're not really struggling. Doing pretty good right now. God told the Israelites, when you go into the land flowing with milk and honey, be careful lest you forget me. And here we are in the land of milk and honey, and I'm afraid physically we have forgotten God. And Jesus is saying here, pray to your Father who is in heaven Give us this day everything we need to survive physically. If God does not give us life and all we need for it, we have nothing. And to ask God to give us our daily bread is to recognize that we rely solely upon Him for our very lives. Give us this day our daily bread is the cry of a crouching beggar declaring his need to the giver and sustainer of life. And it's the ultimate proclamation of faith in God's grace and love to give us life. God, give me everything I need to be alive because I recognize that it comes from your hand or it does not come. But that's not all we need, right? Verse 12. Oh boy. Here we go. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, we've asked God for our physical needs. And in this verse, we address another need. And forgive us our debts. Now, what is this about? What does it mean to have our debts forgiven? Well, let me tell you plainly, it's not your financial debts. This is not cast your visa before the Lord and forgive me this debt for I am stupid. This is not talking about financial debts. It's referring to a spiritual debt. It refers to sin. Oh boy. Y'all ready? Here we go. We're praying to God in this prayer and the debts He forgives are not credit cards. He forgives the debts that we incur from sinning against Him. Each sin we commit puts us further and further in debt to Him. You've probably heard before the phrase, Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. That's what we're talking about here. Christians are those who have had their sin debt paid by Jesus, who went to the cross and took the wrath of God. We sang about it this morning. Took the wrath of God for our sins, which served as payment for our sins. So Jesus says to pray that God would forgive our debts. But wait just a second. Jesus paid it all. All for me, I know. 
Right? So why would Jesus tell his disciples to ask for their debts to be forgiven if they're already paid? And here's where things go really sideways. I think the answer is twofold. Okay, stay with me. First, I think that as Christians, we have to have a proper perspective of the sins that we commit and the sin that still indwells us. Our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Some of y'all wrestle with that. Talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Forgiveness is the greatest need of the spiritual animal of man. And our sins, Scripture teaches, are forgiven past, present, and future when we come to Christ. And we sin after we're born again. And we will continue to do that until we see Jesus face to face. And an awareness of that tendency keeps us both humble and needy before God and also thankful for the forgiveness that is in place for those sins. But I don't think that's all Jesus meant. I said the answer was twofold. Jesus didn't just say, forgive us our debts. Did He? Look. And forgive us our debts. No? Mm-mm. He said, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now note that structure. Forgive us as we also have forgiven. Do to us like how we've done to others. It's asking God to forgive you as you have forgiven others. Forgive me in this way. Now what? I want you to forgive me like I've forgiven them. I want you to forgive me like I've forgiven everybody else. Well, maybe I haven't forgiven everybody else. Hmm, well that's problematic. Do to us like we've done to others. Forgive me like I've forgiven others. Now I'm going to say something. Anybody got any stones here? All right. I'm going to say something. You ready? I can't find anywhere in the New Testament that tells a believer to ask for forgiveness for sins. Anybody? I can't. I've looked. I've tried. Can you? This structure in our passage today is not one because it's saying, forgive me like I forgive others. There's 1 John 1 9. Somebody should be thinking about that. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a big problem here. This is not asking for forgiveness. This is confessing a sin. And you're like, okay. Confessing, the word is homo logeo, which means to say the same thing as, to say the same word. Homo is same, logos is word. Say the same word as. So I say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. 
It doesn't say ask for forgiveness. It says confess your sin. Say the same thing about it. And then I don't ask for forgiveness, but I experience the forgiveness that is mine because of Jesus when I say the same thing about my sin that God says. Stay with me, okay? Don't, don't close the book on me yet. And again, note that it doesn't say that if we ask for forgiveness that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, it says if we confess our sins. So that's not a command to ask for forgiveness for believers. I bring that up because I think we have to see this to make sense of our passage today. The petition is not, God, please forgive us our sins. No, the petition is for God to forgive us as we have forgiven others. The petition is that we would be forgiving people. Give us our physical needs and make us forgiving people. That's the petition. No rocks yet? You're like, I'm going to go find a couple. But if you want further proof of what I'm saying, we're going to jump to verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, if that don't cause you some problems, you ain't reading it right. If that doesn't rock your world, you're not thinking about it. Let's do some math, okay? Jesus said, we said that Jesus is telling us to pray that we would be forgiving people. In these two verses, He shows the necessity of this. Put simply, Jesus is saying here that unforgiving people cannot be forgiven. So if you're saved and you don't forgive someone, are you not forgiven? Well, now we said earlier that all of our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven when we're born again, right? Well, is it right or not? Well, if it is, can God not forgive us if we don't forgive others? Past, present, and future. All for me, I know. Jesus paid it all. So this is problematic. Can God not forgive us if we don't forgive others? Let me try to boil this down to the simplest explanation I can come up with here. Jesus is saying that those who are forgiven will forgive. Period. There's no way around it. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you have not been forgiven, you will not be forgiving. So getting back to the petition to forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, it's a call to be aware of our being forgiven and a call to forgive in light of being forgiven. Both actively. Yes, we need to be conscious of our sins. I am not saying... Don't worry about confessing your sins. But I'm saying, confess your sins. And know that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we say the same thing about our sins that He says about them. 
I don't go to God like a crouching beggar asking for forgiveness for my sins once I'm born again. I come confidently and boldly to receive the grace that I need in my time of need. God, I have sinned. Luther said if you're going to sin, sin boldly. And what he meant by that was, say it. Confess it. Don't mamby-pamby, well, I know, it might not be as bad as maybe I thought it was, and God, you know that I was in a tight spot. No! God, I have sinned. And you experience forgiveness because He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because Jesus paid the penalty for that sin on the cross. That sin. And when you experience that forgiveness, can you look at somebody else who needs forgiveness and say, I ain't forgiving them. You cannot. It's impossible. You cannot be forgiven and not forgive other people. You can't do it. So God, forgive me in the same way that I forgive other people. We do need to confess our sins. We need to keep short accounts of God, with God. I need to be in the habit of confessing when I sin. Knowing that I have been forgiven, that I am forgiven, and that I will be forgiven. And as this is being brought to our attention all the time, our sinfulness, as we sin and have a more and more clear view of our forgiveness, we will become more forgiving people. Forgiven people forgive people. Unforgiving people do not know what forgiveness is. So our saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and Jesus saying that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven, shows all of this to us in real time. I know we could spend a lot more time here, but we've got to move on. It's going to be a fun lunch. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We've seen our daily need our need for bread, our ongoing need to know and show forgiveness. And now we ask God to do what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. My blood pressure's up. My ears red? Sorry. Here we have an awareness of sin to the point that we're asking God to keep us from being led into temptation to sin. In the previous request, we're mindful of our sins and the sins of others. And here, we're mindful of even possible sins. We ask God for His guidance, His leadership to help us walk in paths that are free from sin and evil. Now one of the major questions here is, would God lead me into temptation if I didn't ask Him not to? If I asked, yeah, yeah, if I didn't ask Him not to. Well, we know that God does not tempt us to sin. We talked about this several weeks ago. And we looked at the difference between testing and temptation, that Jesus' temptation. James says this, James 1, 13-14, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God does not and cannot tempt us with evil. But James also says, James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in 
Nothing. So there are trials that we will meet along the way. And God will bring those trials into our lives to make us perfect, lacking in nothing. I like what John MacArthur says here. He points out that our petition here in the disciples' prayer to lead us not into temptation is a cry to not let the trial become a temptation. I like that. Help me handle the trials so that they don't lead me into sin. Makes a lot of sense to me. Have you ever got in the midst of a trial and then you start making some bad choices? Well, that's your sin. You were led astray by your desires in the midst of the trial. I don't want to get in trouble at work. I don't want this person to know what I said about them. When you could come clean, you could do the right thing and come out of that trial. Yeah, you're going to suffer some loss. You're going to take a, a bludgeon into your name, but you pass the trial. Don't let me fall into temptation when the trials come. I like that thought. We have to be wary of sin even before it happens and ask for God's help in dealing with it. And Jesus also points out back in the prayer that we should ask to be delivered from evil, and this can literally be translated as the evil one. Satan is the one who will tempt us, lure us, and lead us away from the person, people, and place of God. And we ask God to help us, to deliver us from Him. And I would say also from all evil, not just the evil one. We are surrounded in our world by evil. And our heart cry here is that we would not fall prey to the evil around us, nor will we be so caught up in it that we're actually in a place where we like it. Ever been there? Kind of like the evil. Feels good. Tastes good. Bread. No. So lead, lead me not into temptation. Keep me from a place where I'll actually enjoy sin. Because I've been there. And I've done that. And I don't want to do that again, God. The word is deliver us from evil, meaning to draw away from and to rescue from. Being in the world means being surrounded by evil. Being delivered from that evil is to be rescued from it or drawn away from it. The expulsive power of a greater affection. I love God more than I like my sin. And we will be drawn to the very presence of God when He delivers us so that we can know and enjoy Him instead of the evil that we are in the midst of. So there's our model, our skeleton. And I know some of you may be asking the question, what about for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. Where's that? Well, funny you should mention that. Funny I should mention that, that you would think of that, that you might mention it. The ESV does not include that clause in their, or that sentence in their translation of the prayer. The NASB includes it in verse 13, but it's in brackets. The KJV includes it. That's most, what most of y'all memorized, what I memorized. The, the Net Bible, which I love, by the way, I know I've said this before, New English Translation, great translation, literal translation of the Bible. The Net Bible doesn't include it, but has this footnote to explain why. Most manuscripts... Read, though some with slight variation, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen here. The reading without this sentence, though, is attested by generally better witnesses. The phrase was probably composed for the liturgy of the early church and most likely was based on 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13, 
A scribe probably added the phrase at this point in the text for use in public scripture reading. Both external and internal evidence argue for the shorter reading. End of quote. I want you to see that First Chronicles passage real quick. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That's really pretty. So, this was a common ending to prayer. Did Jesus say it? Probably not. Not not in this passage in Matthew's account of the gospel. It's not in the earliest manuscripts of the gospel of Matthew. Okay? Does that shake your faith? I hope not. I mean, because it's it's not a big deal. The earliest manuscripts didn't have it. Later manuscripts had it. They probably added it. Jesus probably didn't say it, but there ain't nothing wrong with it. So don't let that shake you up. There's a lot of variation in the, in the manuscripts, and it means nothing. Those variances mean nothing, affect nothing doctrinally. It's words like this, okay? So the ESV doesn't include it because it's not in the earliest manuscripts, okay? Is it bad to include it? No. It surely works in the context of so many prayers could have ended with such a phrase, but it's also not wrong to not include it, as it looks like a later edition that is more tradition than translation. Just want to address that. Now, application. The simplest way we can apply this passage is to let it provide us with the components that we need for prayer, because that's what Jesus was teaching it for. That's the point of the text. So we'll go back to our earlier observation to give us an outline of the prayer and our use of it. So two headings, God and us. Under God, we have God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Under us, we have bread, forgiveness, and temptation. Now, write that down. Take a picture of it. Do something. Use this. That's what's Jesus' point in saying, pray then like this. Or when you go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, and pray according to those headings. Don't mechanically and by rote just repeat this prayer, hoping that it unlocks a magic door in heaven that God's going to hear you. Pray according to these headings. That's not hard. And it's revolutionary. What if I actually prayed like Jesus taught me how to pray? What if we prayed like Jesus actually taught us how to pray? Well, I'm no good at prayer. I don't know how to do it. Do it that way! One plus one equals two. So what's it look like? Let's just pray. Okay? Our Father, it is a privilege and an honor to call you Father. And I want your name to be hallowed in our lives. I want your name to be special. I want to exalt you in what we do, what I do, what we do as a family, what we do as a church, what we do as your people. I want your name to be hallowed. I want people to see you as special, God. 
God, we ask that your kingdom would come here where we are, that we would be those who walk according to the precepts of your kingdom. God, that your will would be done in our day, in our time, in our lives, in our jobs, in our leisure, in our food, in our drink. God, would you help us to do your will? And God, you know we have needs. Give us everything we need that pertains to our daily lives, our physical existence, because God, we recognize that if you don't give it to us, we don't have it. Give us what we need. And God, you have forgiven us. Help me to know that forgiveness. And more than that, God, help me to show that forgiveness to the people around me, around us. Because God, if I don't know your forgiveness, I'm not going to show your forgiveness. And if I don't show your forgiveness, I do not know your forgiveness. Help me to forgive the people around me in the same way that you've forgiven me. And I'm asking you to forgive me in the same way that I forgive other people. And God, I live in a world that is full of muck and sin. Please keep me away from the temptation to sin. Please keep us away from the temptation to sin. Deliver us from the enemy, the evil one who would seek to destroy us. Help us, God. Please, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, that didn't take an hour. And I'm not saying recite what I just said. Use that. Pray then this way. Like this. Let's pray. God, as is so often the case, we bring up more questions than we answer. But we recognize in this passage today that the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. God, may we not be led astray from the simplicity of approaching you as our Father and asking for your will to be done, for your kingdom to come, and to meet the needs that we have physically, mentally, and spiritually. Father, you have told us to come. And you've told us to come boldly. So we come as your children. And thank you that you have taught us to pray. And it's not a question of if we will pray or not. This is how we should be praying. Daily. For our daily needs. Alone, in our rooms, with the door shut. Praying to our Father who is in secret. And God, I am convicted of my prayerlessness. I pray that you would convict us of our prayerlessness. And help us to be a praying people who pray according to the directions that you've given us. We need your Spirit's conviction. We need your Spirit's help. We need your Spirit's empowerment to do this very thing. So we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.